Hello, I am Mike Dominic. This is the Mike Dominic Show. It is the 21st of July. I'm speaking really fast for reasons I don't understand. It's the inner New Jersey coming out. So today I have an interview I've actually wanted to do for some time. Jonathan Stark, he's the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts. And I read his book uh, a little while ago. And frankly, I'm a, I'm a believer. I just reread it recently to prepare for the interview. It's fantastic. I know a lot of you either from the Coda Radio days or you know those who are new as of the Mike Dominic show here, are opening dev shops or doing independent development consulting and always have questions about billing and all that kind of stuff. This is honestly a lot of my evolution on this. I know if you were back from the Coder days, I used to rail against fixed pricing. I am in the process of changing with Rabot, which is obviously a product and I have services on top of it. It's uh, Jonathan Stark's ideas are, are what caused the change. I, he identifies some great problems. I, I know many of you may be somewhat skeptical to these ideas, but if you find yourself at a place where you're either coming in under your estimates or you're, you know, you're, you're hitting a uh, kind of plateau in your business, particularly if you're, let's say, a few guys, a few folks working, doing development work, you need to give his ideas. I'll put it to you this way. I think his book is 10 bucks now or five, whatever it is. I think it's about $10. It, it's worth the price. You need to take a look at it. Um, and it's available in all the major formats. As always, the show is brought to you by the Mad Botter, my software development company, which does still do some consulting. So if you have any Python or Ruby work, I hesitated on Python because I think we just booked the last of it out. That might not be true, but reach out anyway. We can always schedule things. Uh, let me know if you want to follow me on Twitter. It's at Dumanuku. That's D-O-M-I-N-U-C-C-O. If you're wondering what the hell that means, that is my family's name. That got changed in Ellis Island, and uh, Dominic was taken. So there you go. Uh, other than that, check out demo.rabot.tech for your automation needs. And with no further ado, here's Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan Stark. How are you today? Hey, great. Good to be here. Thanks for coming. You know, I just finished your book, Why Hourly Billing is Nuts. And mm -hmm. I have to say, you have made a convert out of me. Oh, good. That's the point of that book. So before we dive right in, could you tell the folks a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Jonathan Stark, and I'm a former software developer who's now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. I uh, used to run a dev shop uh, back in about 2005, and I had an epiphany about hourly billing and why it's nuts. And I went off on my own to start a uh, solo consultancy doing software development where I did not charge for my time. Instead, I charged uh, based on value. And it was a, a big success. A lot of my friends asked me how I did it. And I started blogging about it, eventually wrote the book, and I've written a couple more since. Awesome. So quickly, what is value pricing? So value uh, pricing or value-based pricing is setting your prices based on what something is worth to the buyer instead of how much it's going to cost you to produce. So if you think of uh, like a simple example would be like, um, I don't know, like a can of Coke, a can of Coke, when you buy a can of Coke, uh, if you buy it at a baseball game, it's going to be worth more to you and therefore it costs more. If you buy it at the convenience store at the front of the you know the checkout near the front, it's going to cost less than the ballpark, but it's still going to cost more than it would if you bought it in a six pack in the back of the grocery store. The can of Coke basically, I'm sure costs exactly or marginally uh, different, exact same amount to, to produce. But I doubt that you care about that when you're deciding whether or not to buy it. You're thinking, is this worth a dollar? Is this worth $2? Is this worth 25 cents? And that's the, that's the basic concept. And it's how you buy pretty much everything. 
whenever you go to you're presented with a price, you make a value judgment. Is it worth that much money to me? And you come up with a yes or a no, and you purchase or you don't. So it's it's really the normal way that things are are purchased. Certainly, and many many things are value priced. Um, so it, it's just a strange thing uh, for people to imagine using that for something like you know building software or other kind of professional services or projects because it's just not the normal way. The normal way is to turn the clock on, keep track of your hours and send an invoice, you know, every couple of weeks for how much time you put in. But that uh, leads to all kinds of bad things. Right. And, th- and this is the model I think myself and a lot of uh, software development shops have, right? We have a cost per developer or maybe different costs for different developers. Um, we have some margin on that and we charge based on that. But I, I, one of the things that really like hit me like a thunderbolt with your book was talking about Fred's and Barney's. <laughs> so I don't know if you want to dive into that. And yes, I, I love the Flintstones reference. So yeah, good. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> right. So the Fred and Barney story is, it occurred to me one time while I was at this dev shop that our best developer was costing us money and our most junior developer was printing money for us, basically. Because, you know, we build out everybody at the same rate as a blended rate and we build everybody out, at, you know, it was probably $150 an hour at the time. And our best guy was you know, probably making $90,000 a year. And he was really fast. He would get things right the first time. He didn't have a lot of bugs to fix. He was just really good, really fast. He's one of the best developers I ever met. And uh, we could barely keep him busy and barely cover his salary. So we're making very little profit off of him. And then we had this junior guy who was basically an intern. He had a great bedside manner. Customers loved him, but he was really slow. He had to do things two and three times. It just took him forever to get stuff done, uh, but the clients didn't care. They were perfectly happy. So we were making tons of money off of Barney and we were basically breaking even or losing money with Fred. And I was like, this is wrong. And like, I, I just couldn't get my head around it. And for a while, I would do these sort of mental gymnastics of like, well, you know, you know, Fred attracts other good developers and Fred sometimes teaches other developers how to do stuff. But no matter how you looked at it, the more good developers we had and the more Fred helped Barney get better the less money we made because it was just going to make everyone faster and better. And I was like, something's really wrong here. I feel like I should want good developers, but maybe now I want bad developers. And then that's when it hit me. Right. I think there was an episode you, um, uh, you talk about right before you started up your solo consulting business where you were the VP over at the old shop Mm -hmm. and you had this constant task that I, I'm very familiar with myself owning a dev shop. Okay, my best developer is now out of work because he or she finished a project that we said would be a month in like, you know, two weeks or something. Mm -hmm, Right. My slower developers have now, they now have more work. And because it's hourly in time and materials, there's not a whole lot of risk for, for, you know, the shop itself. Mm Mm-hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong. I read the Barney and Fred section and then the baseball bat concept yeah. as literally A leads to B, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You, yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about the baseball bat at all. Sure. The baseball bat story um, is, you know, I had a particular client who was, uh, he was a longtime client. We did a lot of work together, uh, but he was really chatty. And there were times when 
he would, you know, spend a half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour telling me a story about, you know, how he proposed to his wife on the, on the jumbotron at a basketball game or, you know, stuff like that. Like the kinds of things that you really want your clients to do because they're, they're trusting you, they're engaged with you, they like you. So that's good. You should want people to be sharing personal details about their life with you in a client services relationship. The trouble was that I was responsible for getting in a certain number of billable hours per week. You know, I was getting paid salary and my boss had expectations about billable hours, just sure. like most, you know, like a, like in a law firm or any other, any firm, you know, you've got, you've got your hours you got to get in. So if I'm wasting, you know, half an hour a day chatting with this client, it creates a problem for me because that's coming out of my personal time. You know, now I have to work an extra half an hour to get my hours in. And, you know, so I pull out the baseball bat and I say, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to charge you for that conversation where you told me about, you know, that funny thing your kids did at the trampoline park. And you can imagine how well that went over. You know, he gets a bill for telling me a personal anecdote. Yeah. It's terrible. You just keep hitting him with the bat. It's like, no, how dare you waste my time? It's, it's completely ridiculous. Right. It's the exact opposite relationship that you actually want, right? Right. So, okay, let, let's, I'm going to pick on myself a little bit. I am sure that a lot of my audience, and we have a lot of independent contractors that listen, a lot of uh, folks starting up consultancies or dev shops or digital, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has their pet name. (laughs) And in the past, I have uh, been a pretty big proponent of time and materials Mm -hmm. because I've been doing this for a long time. And you know what? That baseball bat's nice. It's uh, titanium. It's really (laughs) good swing. But I have hit the point where my team is a lot more senior than they used to be right Right. Mm -hmm. and it really is the case that my biggest challenge is we're in except for like a few giant projects we're getting like you know we used to do a lot of like native mobile development we're getting like build me an iphone app for ipad or i should should say an ipad app we're Mm -hmm. getting that done under estimate Mm -hmm. so and because we're not you know like committing fraud and just padding the padding the invoice (laughs) i'm telling someone you know let's say i say it's going to be like 20 grand or whatever Mm-hmm. And then I'm giving them an invoice for 15 and they're super happy. I'm, I'm really not though. Cause now I have to get back on the roadshow or in the case of COVID time, you know, mm-hmm. back on the phone, back on the, you know, looking at landing pages, things like that and trying to sell another iPad app. Mm-hmm. That seems like the worst possible scenario for every, everybody here. hundred percent. Yeah. So h- how does one worse where if you, the only way you could make that worse for yourself is if in your quote or your proposal to them, you did an hourly not to exceed. That's the absolute worst. You're not exceeding it. So it's kind of the same difference, but hourly not to exceed is the absolute worst thing that anyone can do for themselves. But why is that? Because now you're taking all the risk and getting none of the reward. The, the nice part about hourly billing is the person who is billing the hours takes no risk. No matter what happens, if the project's right. a giant failure, you get paid no matter what. You get paid no matter what. No risk. But with no risk, there's no reward. So, you know, in business, there's no, there's, you're not going to get any big profits if you're not taking any risk. So if you fix price something and you uh, calculate the price based on value, you can hit some real financial home runs for yourself if you get the right kinds of clients. You know, people who have really big bet the business projects, really important projects, you can make a lot of money in a short amount of time. Hourly not to exceed gives you the risk because you can't, you essentially you've, you've fixed price yourself, so you can't go over that number. But if you come in under hours wise, you don't get any of the reward. <laughs> you get, you get hit on both sides. Yeah, right? it's the worst. 
So what would you say for someone who, because I, I, I would gamble that there's a lot of people in my position, right? You have a shop, you're, you're, you're between, let's say, you know, around 10 guys or 10 folks. What do mm-hmm. you do? So Jonathan, I have to tell you, you're kind of famous at my shop, The Mad Botter now. We call you Lord Stark. <laughs> because yeah, Game of Thrones. every, every standup, I have been ev- uh, just evangelical in preaching your lessons here, to, mm-hmm. particularly to my biz dev guy. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I made the analogy. I took I took your ideas maybe a little far, and I said hourly billing is like you had a problem, so now you decided to start taking methadone all day long because <laughs> you, you don't want the pain of fixed bid. But the truth is, you can survive on methadone, but you're never going to go anywhere, right? And, and we've been stuck at the same kind of structure and size and you know profitability for a couple years now, yeah, right? We haven't, yeah, we haven't been able to move because every time I try to scale. Well, we hit a dry spell and then, you know, we, we oscillate between like 10 and 15 people up and down, up and mm-hmm. down. It's, it's like that tea, uh, that pharaoh ride at the circus. <laughs> what do you do? How do you get off the methadone? You have to stop trading time for money. And that can be a value pricing solution. It could be a productized service solution. It could be a product solution. But you have to stop charging for your time because you're just never going to get there. You know, with time, you end up in this hourly ceiling that you just described where you can't, the better that you get, you're a, per, a classic case because it sounds like your developers have some experience. They're pretty good. Sounds like the organization is, you know, well-organized. Now, the problem is hourly billing punishes expertise. Like we talked earlier about the good dev and the intern dev, the better you get, the less money you make. You know, people argue, well, you could increase your hourly rate, but no one really does that enough to compensate. Right. Because you can get a lot better, a lot faster than you can increase your hourly rate. So, you know, if you're doing 150 bucks an hour, 200 bucks an hour as an iOS dev, and then, you know, your team gets really good, you can't turn around and just go to four or $500 an hour. Like try and, try and close a deal where somebody says, Hey, you know, I heard you do, do great iOS apps. What's your hourly rate? And you say, Oh, it's $500 an hour. Click. <laughs> yeah, I, I could hear my business guy crying right now. Yeah, yeah it's just not going to happen. Yeah, because you're presenting yourself as a commodity with a price tag, and they're going to compare you to the other ones of you. Like I get an iOS developer for forty bucks in the Philippines. Right. There's no. Uh, you're presenting yourself as the same as iOS developers instead of presenting yourself as like a a, a quality difference. When you or someone gets to the point where they're coming in underestimate you're ready to do some fixed pricing for sure. And certainly you could do value-based pricing. It takes practice, but you could certainly do that. The other things you could do are create productized services, which we can talk about, or just come up with products and sell products. But you have to disconnect your time for money to break through to the next level. What would you say is the easiest or the most common next step? Productized services. Productized services. Can you, a little bit on what that actually is? Yep, a productized service is a fixed scope offering that you publish at a f- specific price on your website that uh, is delivered you know over uh, at like a service so it's packaged like a product delivered like a service so when a customer comes along and they see this um, I don't know you could do something like uh, mobile app software architecture and no matter who comes through the door uh, whether it's a mom and pop pizza place or it's Domino's it's going to take you about the same amount of time to do it. It doesn't, there's no scope creep to it. It's a defined scope and you just price it at $10,000 or whatever. 
And when people come along, it's like the Coke, like, you know what your costs are to do it. You just pick a price that's, you know, higher than your costs, maybe double your costs and you wait for somebody to buy it. And, you know, I say, wait, I mean, you would do marketing to get people to buy it, to find people for whom that would be a good deal. But you can get in front of those people, go to Walmart labs or like Amazon or somebody needs something, you know, maybe it's not a tech company, maybe it's John Deere. And they come along and like, oh, these guys are famous. They're well-known. They're experts in their field. They speak at conferences. They've written books. They've done all these things. And we can get a mobile app architecture or a diag- you know, a, a prototype or something from them for 10,000 bucks. Where do I sign? And if you have this as a, you know, whatever the product, maybe that's a, a silly productized service for you, but something that's fixed scope that you probably do on every single project anyway, and you package it up. So it looks like, it feels like a product on your website. It has a price tag published. And then your job is to attract clients for whom that price is a no-brainer. And then the more you do that, the more testimonials you're going to get. You're going to have an easier time selling it in the future. The faster you're going to get at it, you can build libraries and tools and starter projects or whatever the whatever the things you need to put your deliverables together. You can systematize it with your team. You can train people on the team to be especially good at it. And your costs go down and you can raise the price over time because you're getting more testimonials and more referrals for it. And you're not trading time for money anymore. Now, all of a sudden, if you've got an amazing developer, you want to put your amazing developers on this stuff because they can crank it out faster. And the more faster they do it, the more profit you make. And oh, by the way, the better it is for the client. It's a win-win all around, basically. Right. So confession. Mm-hmm. I already do offer something like that called the dock and disk. It's okay. a, exactly what you described. But let me let me give you a weirder case. Let's say I almost feel like it's easier if you're already doing okay with hourly billing to actually make the transition. I know that sounds counterintuitive, mm-hmm. but people in pain tend to make bad decisions, right? <laughs> and you know, doing the show and having done Coda Radio for years, I used to get lots of emails from you know two to three person uh, dev shops, right? Who Oh my God, we've got this client. You know, we did a fixed bid. You know, we're 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 underwater, yep. right? And I think the number one piece of maybe skepticism that might come out of this is: is value based pricing just another name for fixed bid, or is there a fundamental difference? There is a fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I get the same thing. People are like, value pricing, fixed bids. I'll get killed. I've done that before. Clients are from hell. Scope creep and change. They're orders. all demonic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So first of all, clients, when you experience clients from hell, yes, there are some people out there who are tough to deal with, but often I would say the majority of time they're getting that way. They're turning into micromanaging monsters because you're way over your estimate. And they are certainly when you do go over your estimate and they can see that they're not anywhere near being done. Of course, they start to get angry. Of course, they start to micromanage. That's natural. It's right. natural. You've demonstrated that you can't control the project. And maybe it's not your fault, but still it's their money that's leaking out of their, their, you know, checking account. But your question is, what's the fundamental difference between a normal fixed price and a value-based fixed price? And the difference is how you calculate the price. So in a normal fixed price situation, people generally will say, oh, well, I think it's going to take me a hundred hours. My hourly rate's a hundred dollars. They do the math. They tack on some arbitrary percentage for project management or padding. And then they present that to the buyer. The buyer, if they say yes, they get started and then they end up getting killed because, of course, in a one or two hour conversation before a, you know, a non-trivial software project, guess what? You didn't uncover all the scope. 
<laughs> there are surprises. There are assumptions that were baked in. So you just set your price way too low. That's the problem. So when you do time and materials for non-trivial software projects or really any kind of project, which I define to be a collaborative enterprise between the buyer and the seller, it's going to take place over the course of months, not weeks or days. It's a serious undertaking. They're always going to be collaborative. They're never going to be smooth. There are always going to be changes along the way. It's part of the game. So to pretend like it's not going to happen up front by saying, oh, it's going to take me 100 hours is silly. So the problem when you get killed, if, you know, if you're listening and you got killed by a, a, a fixed price project in the past, just put, bring your mind back to that point. Think back to the job, what it was like, what was involved, what ended up happening, how much extra work you had to do to finally satisfy the client, and then tack a zero onto the price. Now, all of a sudden, you didn't get killed. Now, all of a sudden, it was a great project. The problem was your price was too low. Your margins were too thin. So that obvious that raises the question, well, how do I tack a zero on the price and still close the deal? Right. And the answer to that is you find a client that would pay it. So in other words, you find a client for whom this project would have been worth that much money. I know that sounds impossible. So let me walk you through the, the mindset, the big mindset shift. If you are going to do custom projects, meaning you, you, know, you have a client, you talk to them first, you have a sales interview, you do the why conversation, as I call it, and you're going to put together a proposal with value prices on it. If that's what you're going to do, here's the main mind shift that you have to have in, in your head. In a situation like this, in the sales portion, before you write the proposal, or actually up, leading up to the point and concluding with writing the proposal, you scope last. Normally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but normally what happens, especially if you're used to billing by the hour, in the sales meeting, when you first meet the client, all you talk about is scope. They're telling you, Absolutely. we want this feature, we want that feature. And in your head, you're trying to solve the problems that they're presenting you with like, oh, they need an invoicing solution. Okay. And then there needs to be a user flow like that. And in your head, you're trying to guess how many hours it's going to take you or your, or your team to do that. And then at the end, you've got you've guessed this number of hours. It's always too low, although it sounds like you're you're getting good at it. Uh, you do under, but generally, it's too low. So then, of course, if you base a fixed price on that, it's going to be too low. Instead of talking about scope in that meeting, what I want you to talk about is the problem. I want you to undercover the motivation for them to do the project at all. You don't think about what you're going to do. You haven't decided what you're going to do. They're asking you to do some particular things. You may or may not do that. You got to figure out from them why they want to do this project, why they want to do it now instead of later, and why they want someone expensive like you to do it. Once you get answers to all those questions, you will have gained the confidence that you can actually help them. And I don't mean do what they say. That's not helping them. If, it, if you run into a doctor's office and you say, doc, give me a triple bypass, the doctor's not going to say, all right, jump up on the table. <laughs> I hope not. Right. So act like the doctor in one of these meetings. Make sure that you can not do what they say. Of course, you can do what they say. That's why they're talking to you. They need an iOS developer or whatever. That's not the question. The question is, can you improve their business? Can you improve the health of their business? If they write you a $50,000 check or a $150,000 check, are they going to be better off? I need to know that. I want to know that before I engage with a client. 
I think that's a great point, particularly in the mobile space where, you know, there are tons of guys like on Craigslist who have, you know, 20 grand and want to be the next, you know, Uber for insert vertical here. Yeah. Right. Those are not the guys I don't think you should be like, you would agree, right? Do not market towards those guys. I would sell them a productized service, but not for value pricing. Right. Yeah. So let me, I'll just follow through this idea because I left people hanging. So you, in that meeting, you figure out why they want to do this project. And if you do a good job of it, there's going to be some dollar signs attached to it because they're in a business. They're not talking to you because they want elegant code to print out and hang out on the, hang out on the wall framed. They want to solve some business problem, full stop, guaranteed every time. So there's going to be dollars associated with that or they wouldn't give you dollars for it. There's like no way around it. There's some dollars associated in there somewhere. You need to figure out what the business case is for hiring someone expensive like you. Once you know that, and you've also gotten the answers to the questions like, you know, why don't you just go on TopTal? Why don't you just go on Fiverr? Why don't you have your cousin Vinny do it? You get all those questions answered. Then you say, okay, this company is an established company. Maybe it's a chain of laundromats and they want a mobile app so that people can schedule pickup and delivery of their laundry and pay and all of that stuff. It's going to streamline their operations like crazy, you know, so on and so forth. So, okay, great. This is definitely, and you know, you, you talk numbers with them. They've got like five locations. How many locations do we have to support? How many drivers are you going to have? How many customers are you going to have to support? Are you going to be able to, you know, if I 10X your volume, you know, your client volume, are you going to be able to handle the capacity with your existing stores? Yeah, definitely. We're pretty dead right now. We could do 10 times as much work with the current capacity that we have. Okay. So you can literally contribute to 10Xing this person's business and, you know, and it's already a million dollar business which you can just, like, if you can't figure that out, just try harder. Like you can figure out how much business, you know, roughly you can estimate how much a business is doing just by seeing what their payroll is. You know, like, oh, let's say they've they've got 50 employees, like they're definitely doing a million dollars a year, they'd be out of business. So, okay. So like, let's just say that your contribution to this, uh, let's just say that the outcome, the ultimate outcome of delivering this solution to them is definitely worth $100,000 per year to the buyer. Then, okay, so now we've established a value. It's not a science, it's an art. You need to get better at it. This is part of the reason value pricing is hard is that you have to get good at talking to people and uncovering why they really want to do this. Why do you want to give me all this money? Explain to me why. So once you have that why and you've got a ballpark estimate on what it's worth to them, let's say it's $100,000. The next thing I would do, it's still, I haven't decided on what I'm going to do yet. I've not scoped yet. I just know what the problem is or what it's worth to solve. So, okay, $100,000. I'm going to come up with three prices. The low, the first price is going to be 10000 a tenth, a tenth of whatever I think the value is. If this person, if this buyer is talking to me about contributing to this transformation that they want, they must think I can contribute at least 10% to the solution or they wouldn't even waste their time talking to me. Like, I'm not going to put that extra $100,000 a year in their pocket. They still have to get the clients and all of that stuff, but I can contribute to that success and I can at least contribute 10% or they wouldn't even be talking to me. Right. So I'm going to set $10,000 as my first price. And then I'll say to myself, what could I do for these guys for $10,000 that would help them move that needle? And I would be like fist pumpingly happy to get $10,000 for. So maybe it's only going to take me two days you know, or it's going to take one of my developers, you know, whatever, 10 hours for $10,000. So $1,000 an hour effective hourly rate. All right, what could I do? You know, I could give them a plan. I could maybe introduce them to some developers that they trust with, you know, this software architecture. 
maybe there's something I can do for $10,000 for these people that I'd be happy to do. Maybe there isn't. Maybe there's not enough value there for me to do something for $10,000 and I shouldn't take the gig. But there's probably something you can do that will contribute to their success a little bit that would be worth $10,000 to them. And you decide what the scope is after you set the price. So you think like, oh, if I had a budget of 10 grand, what could I do to help these people? Well, they have an internal developer, a web developer. For 10 grand, I could train that person on the basics of how to do an iOS app and give them starter files. And they, they could just, you know, we'll give them the, a couple of screens that it has to have, like a login and the map screen. And then the other person can like just flesh out the other screens. So maybe you could do that for 10 grand. So then I'd say, okay, that's option one. Option two is going to be 22 grand. What could I do for 22 grand? So let's see. Uh, yeah, maybe I will train the internal web developers to help maintain the app after it's launched, but we'll take over more of it. We'll take over more responsibility of the application development and we'll do X, Y, and Z. And yeah, I'd be delighted. You know, you think to yourself, I'd be delighted to do that for $22,000. It'd probably only take me, you know, 10 hours. And then you think, okay, that's, that'll be a scope for option two. Option three is going to be $50,000 and I'm going to take much more ownership over the success. I'm going to contribute more. It's going to have more of my attention. Maybe I include three months of aftercare after it launches or something. Maybe, maybe we agree to put it in the app store instead of them doing it. But if you step back and look at the big picture here in the sales meeting, I uncover the value, not the scope. I don't care about the scope. It doesn't matter if there's no value there. It doesn't matter what the scope is. I uncover the value first. Then I set a price, or in this case, three prices, and then I reverse engineer three different scopes to fit inside of each of those prices, which is the exact opposite of what people do. They scope first, they come up with some estimates, usually they blow the estimates, and then once everybody, you know, the dust has settled, everybody's like, oh, I guess that's how much it cost. I guess that was the price. So you don't, with an hourly type of project, you don't find out what the price was until it's done, until it's too late to decide, no, that's too much. So does that, right. am I explaining the, the scope last thing well? No, I think that makes a ton of sense, right? You figure out basically what the value is to them, what you want to charge, and then you figure out what can you do for that amount of money. Yep. So that requires that you're, you're pretty flexible and you're thinking about what it is that you do. You might think of yourself as, you might say to yourself, I build iOS apps but you actually know how to build iOS apps and you can sell the knowledge. So in a situation like this, you can't pre-decide, you can't decide in advance before you've even uncovered the value, what activities you're going to do because developing something, building something is a very expensive activity and it's going to be tough to fit that into one of these prices if the value if there's not a real high value there so if one of these twenty thousand dollar uber wannabe guys from craigslist comes along and they've only got 20 grand well you can't build the app that they want for 20 grand but you can help them for 20 grand like you can right. do something so you could say to them hey you know i can't help you i can't build this thing for you for 20 grand but what i can do is i don't know teach you how to use like i don't know some like kind of like, you know, you'll scoff at this, but something like PhoneGap or um, Ionic or FileMaker or some of these like off the shelf, no code mobile yeah. solutions. 
Right, and have them, yeah. No, there, there's a million things you could do, right? Have them get a uh, working prototype. I can't remember the name of the tool, but Adobe has one where it actually does like a like a facade of an app, mm-hmm. properly designed and click through. I, I wish I could remember the name of the tool. Yeah, it's like XD, I think. Uh, I don't it's know. It's X something, yeah, yeah. But I mean, Ionic has something like that. Ionic's there. A lot of there's a lot a of bunch them. of them. Yeah, I haven't done this stuff in ten years, but there's a bunch of them out there that that create really high fidelity prototypes that they could do themselves. And then bring that to, you know, someone cheap. Right. They're going to get what they pay for, but they only have 20 grand. So, <laughs> you know. You, right. If you, you, if you, you have 10 bucks, yeah, if you have 10 bucks, the steakhouse is not going to be the dinner for you. Right. right. Yeah. Like the story I tell is like the first, the first self-published book I did, I knew that I didn't want to design the cover myself because I absolute worst when it comes to visual design. So I, yeah, I went to 99designs, which will make the designers in the audience cringe. But that was my bud. That was like my budget. I wasn't going to spend more than that because I was a, a sort of like a novice buyer for that kind of a thing. And you get these novice buyers all the time with software projects like the Craigslist Craigslist people. Twenty grand's even high. I'm I'm, I'm sure I've seen smaller than that. Yeah, I was being very generous. Yeah. So you get these novice buyers who don't. They haven't yet learned their lesson that they get what they pay for with software or with anything, copywriting anything. You get what you pay for. So. If their budget is low, there's nothing you can do really to convince them that their budget is too low. They just need to learn that lesson the hard way. That's part of getting uh, increasing your maturity around these sorts of things. Investing in your business, it's like it pays off if you do it. So for me, there's no person, in the, no designer on the planet could have convinced me to spend more than $500 on a book cover for a self-published ebook. It wasn't going to happen. But then after I did it, and then I wrote a new book, what do you know? My budget was $1,500. And then nope. if I do it again, what do you know? My budget will be $5,000 for the next one for the cover. But you better believe I'm going to find somebody that I trust and they're going to, you know, whoever is going to be someone out there who's doing some really good marketing or comes recommended. But that process of, of the buyer getting educated, you can't sit in a meeting and educate a buyer that their budget is too low. They need to learn the hard way over years that their budget is too low. So there are people, you know, for whom you're never going to get a high budget. The value's not there. It's too risky for them. They they know that their Uber for dogs is probably not going to catch on, but they want to try it anyway. And they've earmarked 20 grand for it. So, right. Okay. If you agree that you'd like to work with the person, like you like them, you know, maybe it's a friend of yours and you're like, yeah, I want to help. I can't really, I can't build it for 20 grand, but I can do a couple of things that would get you going. Yeah. There's, there's always something. I mean, I think in that case, the prototype makes a ton of sense. Sure. All right, Jonathan. So we usually wrap up with the same two questions for everybody. And there's an easy one and a hard one. Which one do you want first? Uh, there's no calculus involved, is there? <laughs> there is no math whatsoever. You're going to have to do a, a bubble sort. Give me the easy one first. The easy one is what are the one or two top tools that you use day to day? Oh, this is the hard one because the tools I use every day, one of them is Drip because I do a daily mailing list, but I actually sure. don't like the tool. So if this is, <laughs> so don't take it as a recommendation. Drip and uh, honestly, I'm going to say Atext, which is a text expander that uh, I've probably got about three or 400 common phrases and even some code and things like that. I, I use oh, it nice. constantly. Every, I probably use it every five minutes. Oh, that's a really good, actually, I, yeah, I need to start using a text expander. That's a really good recommendation. It's massively um, helpful. Mm-hmm. So the hard one is, what should I have asked you that I either didn't know or just simply failed to ask you? How to transition to value pricing. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, that's hard. Um, so 
Yeah. Well, what would the Cliff Notes version of that be? The Cliff Notes version is that you don't want to do a cold turkey, especially if you've got payroll. Don't go cold turkey on value pricing. You'll screw it up. You set your prices too low. You'll think you're doing it at first and you're really not. You need practice scope doing scope last. It's a hard habit to break. So I would say don't go cold turkey. Honestly, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, one would be to do a normal estimate. You know, it's like, oh, it's going to be, we think it's going to be $10,000 or we will guarantee you, we will stand behind $18,500 as a fixed price, 85% premium. So you know that you know what the price is going to be up front or, you know, you can roll the dice and take the estimate version. So that's not a value price, but it is a fixed price that is significantly higher than the estimate. It's not like 10% higher. And that's a way to start to get the feeling of operating on a fixed price basis. If you haven't tried it, uh, it's also, if you have tried it, it's a way to get your fixed prices up higher, much higher than you would have normally. And you might be surprised that a lot of business owners will take the fixed price one, even though it's so much more expensive because a lot of business owners despise risk. They despise not knowing how much something's going to cost before they buy it. I mean, imagine, imagine buying a car and the salesperson saying like, well, we don't know how much it's going to be, but we'll let you know after you've had it for six months. <laughs> yeah. So you can add a, add a fixed price, not quite double your estimate, you know, a little bit less than double your estimate. And if, if you go and do that, you say to yourself, there's no way I, I'll get killed if I do this for 18.5. Well, what does that tell you about your estimate? That means that you know deep down that your estimate is probably off by 100%. Yes. That's pretty bad. And what you're probably doing is lowballing the estimate subconsciously because you want to present the lowest price to get the gig. And then, oh, we went over estimate. Things changed. You're a bad client. How could I have possibly known? That is definitely a common problem. I spent mm -hmm. years with that one. Yeah. So, Jonathan, uh, the name of the book is Hourly Billing is Nuts. Where can uh, folks find you? What's the best place on the inter interwebs to find you? Yeah, best place to go is valuepricingbootcamp.com, where I've got a six-day email course that goes into these topics in more depth. And it comes from my personal email, so you can reply to any email and you'll show up in my inbox and we can start a conversation there. That's probably the best place. Cool. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. I strongly recommend the book. It's... Uh, You've made a believer out of me. <laughs> cool. That's the that's the point of that book. To open people's eyes awesome. to how crazy it is. Awesome. Have a great day, John. Thanks a lot. <laughs>